1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDIC.
0: We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass.
2: It's Jenny. And Jen. And this is an old episode from our back catalog about the Nazca Lines and the fascinating culture that created them.
1: Next week, we're releasing an episode about an ancient volcanic eruption that affected the world on a global level. It's an old story and a big one. We realized we touched on it already in two of our past episodes, on Teotihuacan and the Nazca Lines.
2: The Nazca lived in Peru, in the ancient Altacama Desert. They etched images into the sand in the high desert plateaus of animals and people, some the size of football fields. And when the drought came, their petroglyphs changed too.
1: Some theories suggest that the deep droughts that affected Nazca culture may have come from this global volcanic eruption event that also affected people as far away as China and Japan. Get ready for our most explosive volcanic episode of the season, to date, by revisiting the Nazca in depth. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. See you then! The desert remembers everything.
2: I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl.
1: This is potentially the last episode of this season, and it is wild. It's got all the hallmarks of everything you could want in the season. It's a culmination of everything except maybe eating of the rich, but I'm not sure.
2: Maybe there was. It's all built to this. It's got a little bit of the elements of everything in it, and I love it. So let's dive right in. Imagine a desert spun out like a ribbon for over 1,500 miles along the Peruvian coastline, between the high Andes to the east and the vast Pacific Ocean to the west, a place of brilliant colors and contradictions and secrets. This is the driest desert in the world, drier than Antarctica. Astronauts use it to simulate conditions on Mars. This stretch of desert is also, according to some accounts, the oldest in the world. It's 150 million years old. I've seen different numbers on that. That's the oldest one I've seen. And if this one is true, that makes it older than the Sahara or the Sahel. There are 12 volcanoes in the Peruvian coastal desert, some of them still active. In some places, the sand and rock here has oxidized, coloring sand dunes and hillsides with striking streaks of red and crimson and beige. Today, the desert has several names, depending on where you are. To the north, it's the Satura Desert. To the south, it's the Atacama, and it's a land of contradictions. In some parts of this desert, the average rainfall is something like 0.3 millimeters a year. Some areas don't see rain for 400 years at a time. Moisture is usually seen here only as fog that rises up from the sea. The coastline on the western edge of the desert is one of the most dramatic in the world, with incredible towering cliffs and stunning rock formations.
1: And yet, the area is subject to intense flash floods where sometimes decades of rain fall on the desert in a single day. The flash floods of the Peruvian coastal desert are some of the worst in the world. They've been known to wipe out entire towns. It's a place of stunning and varied landscapes, from perfectly flat plains of silvery gray sand to dunes the size of mountains, ancient riverbeds that roar to life every few hundred years, salt lagoons and geysers that eject water over 30 feet in the air. It's a forbidding place, sometimes called the Death Valley of South America. And yet people have been making their homes here for over 7,000 years. The desert remembers everything. In some places, the weather is so unchangeable that footprints last for centuries. On one high, flat plain, the one between the Ica River and the Rio Grande de Nazca River valleys, there are still tire tracks from a truck. That drove here in the 1920s perfectly preserved. This is where you can find the Nazca Lines.
2: The Nazca Lines are geoglyphs and they're not the only ones. All over the world people have carved art into the earth by scraping off topsoil to reveal different colored soil underneath, by building mounds of raised earth or arranging lines of stones in different shapes, enormous shapes only visible from the air. The Nazca Lines are perhaps the most famous geoglyphs in the world, and they're ancient, created from about 200 BC to 500 AD. But for centuries, they were entirely forgotten. In the 1500s, the Spanish conquistador Pedro Cieza de Leon traveled in what's now Peru and wrote several books about his travels. In them, he mentioned trail markers in his book The Chronicles of Peru, published in 1547. Later, in 1586, another Spaniard named Luis Monzon described seeing ancient ruins in the high Peruvian deserts. He described, quote, signs of streets, and when he asked local indigenous people about them, they said that long before the Inca lived here, a people called Viracocas made paths across the high deserts. However, it wasn't until the 1920s and 1930s, when commercial and military pilots started flying planes over the area, did anyone realize what was actually in that desert.
1: The Nazca Lines are only located in one part of the desert, a high plateau in the foothills of the Andes, between the Ica River and the Nazca River valleys. This is the homeland of an ancient people called the Nazca, who lived in the area from roughly 200 BC to 650 to 750 AD. The Nazca lines date from roughly 200 BC to around 500 AD. The plain stretches over 50 miles in length, but most of the petroglyphs are found within a 19 square mile area. There are thousands most of them pin straight lines stretching through the desert, some for over 30 miles. But there are also more than 70 animal and plant figures and 300 geometric designs, including broad roads and trapezoid shapes taking up entire plateaus.
2: The Nazca lines are stunningly made. There's a monkey with a spiraling tail, a hummingbird, a condor, a spider, a parrot, which kind of looks like a scorpion or something to me, but I don't know, apparently it's a parrot, a whale a lizard, even a dog. The designs are geometric, stylized, and very sophisticated. Many are made from one single unbroken line. I mean, some are very sophisticated. There's also one that looks like a giant blob with hands, and that one is my favorite one. Jen, you've seen this one, right? (laughs) It's like if they they let you and me drink a lot of alcohol and then go out and make a Nazca line, that would be what it looked like. Jenny,
1: I don't need to drink a lot not to be able to draw and make a Nazca line. <laughs> like, I have
2: no artistic talent. I couldn't do this sober either. I also have no drawing talent. none. None at all. And I'm like, it's, it's okay. Like, we don't have to be good at everything. <laughs> anyway, there are also long, dead straight trapezoidal strips. And there's narrower paths that are also long and eerily straight. Not to mention abstract patterns like floral designs and stars. The size of the glyphs measures between roughly 13, 20, and 3,600 feet across. The famous hummingbird is the size of a football field.
1: Most of the shapes can only be seen from the air, although some can be made out from nearby foothills. Up close, all you'll see of the Nazca lines are narrow, shallow trenches, roughly only four to six inches deep, sometimes bordered with low lines of piled-up stones. So Jenny, let's talk about how the Nazca lines were made. People made the lines by removing the top layer of desert soil, composed mostly of reddish-brown, rust-covered pebbles, to reveal the yellowish-gray layer of soil beneath. These trenches may be miles long, but most are only a little more than 13 inches wide, although a few are as many as 6 feet wide in places.
2: The way the lines were made and the unique environment of the desert has prevented the erosion of these lines for more than 2,000 years. The yellowish-gray sublayer has high levels of lime, which hardens in the mist that rises up from the sea, making it uniquely erosion-resistant. And the low walls of piled-up stones that border the lines, generally only a few inches tall, also protect against wind. One immediately obvious question you might have when considering how the Nazca lines were made is this. How did they get those lines so straight? Many of the huge geoglyphs are made up of ramrod straight lines, some of which proceed across the desert for 30 miles, all perfectly straight. How do people do that? Archaeologists
1: believe it was relatively simple. The artist could have drawn a string taut between two stakes and stretched it out across the desert, clearing away a path as they went along the route. Stakes have been found at the ends of some of the paths, which have been carbon dated to give a sense of the glyph's age. By some accounts, given the right tools, a small group of people could have made one of the larger figures in just 48 hours. Of course, the larger mystery is why were these glyphs made? What purpose did they serve? One of the most prominent scholars studying the Nazca lines was a German archaeologist named Maria Reiche. She first visited the Nazca lines in 1941 and made study of them her life's work. She built her own little shed in the desert and lived there for more than 40 years, with no electricity or running water. She lived like a woman obsessed, constantly mapping the lines, preserving them, and doing endless measurements and calculations to try to determine their meaning. She was known to physically chase off trespassers. When she died in 1998, her home was converted into a museum.
2: There's a seminal study about how Reiki was working on one of the lines in the desert near Sunrise, Sometime around the solstice or some other seasonally important time. I forget the exact date. This is one of those stories, John, where I read it somewhere and then went back to see where I could find it so I could do a quote and I couldn't find it. So I'm like, okay, I think I remember these details. It's too vivid not to include, but I forget where I read it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I have those a lot of the time. I uh, frequently am like, did I did I dream this? Is it a fever dream? Like, what are we doing here? But it must be true, or am I just now dreaming of the Nazca lines?
2: I might have dreamed it, exactly. So anyway, according to the lore, she was working on one of these lines. It was like dawn, almost dawn, and she looked up to realize that the sun was rising far across the desert, directly in the path of the line, the very line that she was studying. And it must have been an incredible, goosebump-inducing moment. I can only imagine what it must have felt like to see the sunrise high up in the desert, at the end of this ancient line, and feel like you were understanding something about the ancients that have been lost for 2,000 years. Reiki
1: came to believe that the Nazca Lines were an immense celestial calendar, carved over 19 square miles of nearly flat desert, designed to help their builders keep track of the seasons for purposes of agriculture and religious ritual. Others have built on her work, finding alignments with specific astronomical events like the solstices or equinoxes, and associating the shapes with constellations. However, the archaeoastronomical theory is generally not widely accepted today. Scientists mapping the alignment of various lines and glyphs with astrological events and features have found that the glyphs generally don't match up with constellations, and there's only roughly a 30% alignment with various astronomical features visible in the night sky. The reality is that if you draw a lot of straight lines in the desert, chances are some of them will be aligned with something. 30% is about what it would be if it was due to random chance. So there are other theories about why the lines were made. Another has to do with water. Despite the extremely arid and difficult environment of the desert, people have been living here for over 10,000 years. Throughout much of that history, they practice agriculture. There are some permanent rivers in the desert, including the Loa River, where ancient people left their marks with petroglyphs drawn onto the cliffs overlooking the river.
2: There were also underground aquifers. The people of the Nazca culture, those who built the Nazca lines, were adept at finding those aquifers and tapping into them. They built a complex system of underground aqueducts that transported water from aquifers and more consistent, permanent rivers to their fields and communities, ingeniously designed to limit evaporation in the dry, arid environment. The aqueducts, known as puquios in Quechua, which is a local indigenous language, were and still are today accessible through spiraled, corkscrewed paths descending down to shallow shafts that reach down to water level. People could get to the water from here and draw it up in buckets for drinking and other purposes, and they could also get into the tunnels to repair them. I've seen them referred to as these sort of like ancient manholes, but they look a lot neater. And people in indigenous communities still do that. Like There are still people who crawl into these ancient aqueducts and clean out all the moss and stuff and just make sure that the water's flowing okay. You can see dozens of these corkscrewed access shafts called oyos, or eyes in Spanish, all along a single aqueduct line.
1: It's a matter of controversy how old the Puquios are, but many believe that most of the ones we know of today were built roughly around 400 to 500 A.D., which was around the end of the era of the Nazca Lines. It's believed that the Nazca culture could have, quite possibly would have had to have, access to these aquifers in order to make agriculture possible where they lived. Some scholars have proposed that the Nazca lines don't point to the stars and solstices, but underground aquifers and other water sources. They were there to mark where you could dig to find water in the high plateaus. Once again, however, based on more modern analysis, the glyphs have not been found to point to water sources with any statistical significance. The rate is about 30%, roughly the same as the alignment with celestial bodies, and not more than you'd get with random chance.
2: A third theory suggests that the ancient paths of the Nazca lines were really supposed to be paths. It's not unrelated that while some geoglyphs are extremely long straight lines, others are made up of single meandering lines that form a shape like a monkey with a spiraling tail or a hummingbird or a dog that provide a space for sacred dance. Many of the straight lines point to ceremonial centers that the Nazca built, Some seem to have stone altars incorporated into the design. Anthropologists and historians have studied how geoglyphs were used in other cultures and in other places, mostly in more recent times but also in the past as well. They found that other peoples in other cultures dance along the lines of their geoglyphs as a sort of communion or communication with the gods. So that's one theory today that's a bit more favored, that the geoglyphs were used in sacred ritual dances and their lines were ritual pathways. So, there have been some new discoveries with regard to the Nazca Lines. There are, as we said, thousands of Nazca Lines, and new ones are discovered all the time. In 2011, a new glyph was discovered, and I absolutely love this one. I've seen it described as several different people, one of them sticking out his or her tongue. But to me, it looks like a giant millipede. Like, it's hard to tell what you're looking at. I love it. Or... They got someone like me to do it. They got (laughs) one of us drunk and put us up there and said, go make us a spider. And this is what we came up with. A millipede spider, which is amazing. (laughs) A millipede tongue out spider. It's incredible. I love it. Oh my God, that is exactly what I'd make.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So in 2018, researchers used artificial intelligence to map the entire plateau and look for patterns in the desert too faded to be seen from the air. What they found was incredible. Dozens of brand new geoglyphs that had never been seen before. These new geoglyphs were significantly different than the classical Nazca lines. For one thing, they were older, some of them predating the Nazca lines by a thousand years. They were in a completely different style, using curving lines rather than straight ones, the drawings done in a more casual and less geometric style. And they were found on hillsides rather than on the flat plain. The images include people walking and moving in groups, lines of people waving, a man with spiked up hair holding a club, and animals such as a killer whale and rare pampas cat. One of the most famous, the Paracas candelabra, is roughly 500 feet long and can be seen 12 miles out at sea. Can we just stop for a minute? Killer whales in the desert!
2: So cool! Isn't that cool? There was a whole study about what animals were represented amongst the Nazca lines. And um, one of the things that they noticed was that there were a lot of aquatic things like killer whales and stuff. They're not that far from the from the sea. So it kind of indicates that this is a culture that did a lot of fishing. But also there's a monkey among those animals and monkeys are not in. Local to this area, like you don't get monkeys unless you go all the way over the Andes and into the Amazon rainforest on the other side. So these were clearly people who traveled. They
1: traveled and must have had trade with people who would have like had monkeys. They would have had access to seeing monkeys somehow.
2: Yeah, there was either really good trade contacts or they they traveled to different areas and and saw these animals. So these images are really striking, especially the images of people. The people are often friendly standing facing the viewer with hands raised in greeting. Many have large circular eyes and some even appear to be wearing helmets. I don't think they are wearing helmets, that's just what they look like. Some have strange lines coming out of their heads like the rays of the sun, like they're very kind of otherworldly, eerie images. The culture that made these more ancient lines, by the way, is called the Paracas culture. They lived in this area prior to the Nazca and were found to be genetically related to them. Like, these are the ancestors of the Nazca, basically. Anyway, some researchers believe that these geoglyphs had a different purpose than the more classical Nazca lines that we think of today. They were created on hillsides, not on the flat ground, so they were visible to people from a long way off. They weren't just visible from the air. Some believe that they were sort of like ancient signposts helping travelers find their way to different territories, or perhaps even guiding the way to specific ancient festivals.
1: Literally, it's a signpost to the ancient Burning Man.
2: I mean, legit. (laughs) Legitimately, that's kind of what people think it is. I
1: mean, it makes a lot of sense to me. (laughs) Right.
0: (laughs) We took it all History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.
2: So who were the Nazca? And I think that's the question that you need to answer if you really want to understand what the Nazca lines mean. Like, who were the Nazca and what were they experiencing and going through during this time when they were making these lines? So. If anywhere on Earth is haunted, it's the deserts of Peru. There are parts of this desert where fossilized whale corpses lie spread on their backs with fins outstretched for miles and miles, as if making snow angels in the sand. They've lain here undisturbed for millions of years. There are parts of this desert where the sand is stippled with pieces of twisting black and green glass, the remains of a comet strike 12,000 years ago. There are parts of this desert on the Nazca Plateau where up to 6,000 shallow, human-sized holes march up a hill for almost a mile in a tightly packed band up to 60 feet wide. It's the band of holes. Google it. Oh my gosh.
1: You don't have to Google it, and Jenny will put it in the show notes. But I mean, if you're not looking at the show notes right now, then Google it.
2: It's amazing. The Band of Holes is just so mysterious. It's much younger than the Nazca lines. People think it might have been made by the Inca, but it's it's just a it's another huge ancient world mystery that I did not have time to cover because this is already a 19-page episode. Anyway, and there are parts of this desert where human bones strew the sands, the remains from ancient cemeteries, some gradually exposed through erosion and others scattered by looters.
1: So for those of us who are keeping track on what makes this a Jenny Williamson episode, (laughs) although this was originally my topic and I had to ask Jenny to cover it for me because I was a little overwhelmed with some life stuff this season. Shocker. But what makes this a Jenny Williamson episode? Bones where they shouldn't be. Bones where they shouldn't be. This is just
2: the start of it.
1: There is one thing in here that makes it a Jen episode, but we're not there yet.
2: We're not there yet, but it's a real Jen episode thing. It's a real
1: Jen episode. So, one of those places filled with bones in the desert is Chochia Cemetery. This is an ancient necropolis, located roughly about 40 miles south of the Nazca Lines. It was in use from roughly around 200 to 800 AD, and it's widely believed the people who used it were the same people who built the Nazca Lines. Prior to 1997, it was viciously plundered, with many precious artifacts and textiles stolen, and bones scattered across the sands. Since then, archaeologists have been working to painstakingly piece the burials back together. Some of the bodies are almost a thousand years old. They were kept in open-air mud-brick tombs, and the way they were buried is interesting and unique. They were buried in an upright sitting position, wrapped in thick bundles of cotton cloth, and then painted with resin. There was not a discernible distinction between male and female burials suggesting that there may have been a fair amount of equality between men and women.
2: The bodies are extremely well-preserved, probably because of the resin and the dry air. Many have complete sets of white, healthy teeth and long, thick hair down to their waists. So much hair! Anyway, there's an eerie site nearby where desiccated logs stick out of the desert amidst tumble-down stone walls. It's believed that this is where the Nazca people laid out their corpses before burial to dry them. So it's basically a a charnel house. So what do we know about the people buried here? Other than that they had fabulous hair and great dental hygiene.
1: What scholars believe they know today is that early Nazca society was made up of small local chiefdoms who came together at regional centers of power and religion. They were not an urban society. They lived in small rural settlements in steep-sided valleys. They often built their homes on flattened terraces dug out of steep hillsides. This reminds me of Gobekli Tepe and also Scarab like, just that they didn't have, like, the central big city. They were small groups who came together for big religious ceremonies into one area.
2: Yeah, I would say that they're more settled than the people of Gobekli Tepe, who are probably, you know, more genuinely hunter-gatherers, or at least semi-settled. Skara the people there, they were pretty settled, right? Like, they just lived at Skara all the time, I think.
1: Yes, but they their religion and stuff was at these big centralized religious places they would go to, like Brodgar and stuff. So they they would meet with other people in a certain place for religious functions. Yeah, I think Scarborough was a bit more settled and also older and a very different climate, but near the sea. It's just that that idea of small families and chieftains and then going in for the big centralized religious festivals is such an interesting contrast to places like Cahokia and Teotihuacan.
2: Yeah, totally.
1: The Nazca were largely farmers, who tended to live in river valleys and near whatever springs they could find or aqueducts they could build. They grew crops such as corn, beans, squash, and peanuts. They also caught fish along the coast. Nazca culture is notable in that there don't seem to be many large urban centers. These were small clans or tribes that shared a culture, but that wouldn't have been considered an empire or a kingdom. There's no evidence of centralization or town planning. It's estimated that at its peak, the Nazca culture involved about 25,000 people total, living mostly in small settlements along the sides of steep river valleys. Again,
2: that feels a lot like Neolithic Orkney to me. The other uh, thing I was thinking about was like the Celts and the Gauls. The culture was kind of widespread, but it wasn't centralized. It wasn't like an empire or a kingdom. It was like different um small family groups and tribes that all variously shared a culture more or less but that weren't one big country that they would have recognized anyway so while this was not an urban culture there were some impressive sites where large groups of people did come together one is Ventilla, which actually may have been the one urban center that the nazca did have although there is not full consensus on this Ventilla covers about 500 acres along the side of a valley with hundreds of small terraces carved into the hillside. On the terraces have been found the remnants of individual homes, enclosures, and man-made mounds that may have played a religious role. And archaeologists don't fully agree on what Ventilla was. Some believe it was the Nazca's capital city. Others say that it's actually kind of hard to tell what those buildings were and that more excavation is required before it can really be determined if this was a city or not. Anyway, there's one interesting feature of Ventilla a long ceremonial road running from the city to another important Nazca site, Cahuachi. Cahuachi is absolutely fascinating.
1: Located on the south side of the Nazca River, it's a ceremonial complex that was built around 100 BC, so right at the beginning of Nazca culture. This location may have been chosen because of its year-round water supply, a rarity in Nazca country. Cahuachi is a large, sprawling ceremonial complex that contains approximately forty man-made mounds and hills terraced into pyramids, the largest of which is about sixty feet high. The mounds and pyramids have adobe rooms on the sides and sometimes structures on top and between them stretch large ceremonial plazas. Post-holes around the plazas and other areas of the site suggest that there were once canopies stretched over them, providing some much-needed shade to worshippers.
2: Kahuachi is a complex network of chambers, passageways, plazas, patios, and structures of indeterminate purpose. It may look like a city, but no signs of regular habitation or dwellings have been found here. It would seem that Kahuachi was a religious center, perhaps a pilgrimage site that attracted people from all over the region for periodic religious festivals, not a place where people actually lived. However, what has been found at Kawachi include decorated pottery, baskets, musical instruments, and even the remains of looms. The looms were backstrap looms, a very simple type of portable loom that allows the user to weave very complex embroidered textiles. It's thought that the looms had to be portable because everyone who came to Kawachi had to bring everything they needed with them.
1: We've also found remains of animals at Kawachi, including llamas and guinea pigs. The guinea pigs had broken necks and their remains seem to have been slit open and maybe disemboweled, suggesting a kind of divination practiced here.
2: You know what that reminds me of is like divination stuff that the Romans did when they disemboweled a chicken and decided that the gods were like talking to them through its liver or something. I just need to do more study of this type of divination because it's it's wild.
1: To me, that kind of stuff is absolutely fascinating, that sort of study of divination and this belief in sort of science, importance, and how we can communicate with the world beyond the world. I find that really interesting, and I find the idea that people did that, there is a sort of comfort there in the unknown that was absolutely terrifying.
2: Not much comfort to the animals involved. No, no comfort to the animals involved. Large,
1: partially underground storage jars contain maize, peppers, and other foodstuffs that suggest there was communal feasting here. The Nazca people were known for their geoglyphs, but they were also incredibly creative in other mediums. They built complex underground aqueducts and spiral oyos and produced incredible textiles and ceramics with complex designs that give us clues to their religion and worldview. It's believed that their religion centered around water, fertility, and agriculture.
2: The pottery and other artifacts found at Cahuachi and other places were richly decorated with motifs that tend to repeat, including in the Nazca lines. Elaborate, double-spouted bottles, cups, bowls, effigy vessels, which are like, you know, vessels in the shape of animals. There was this one that was this really dopey-looking lobster I sent you on a picture. It's so cute. I love the lobster. (laughs) She'll put it in the show notes because it's
0: so
1: cute.
2: Anyway, so all kinds of amazing pottery like that have been found, painted in as many as 12 polychrome colors. Grave goods show that people at all levels of society had this beautiful pottery, suggesting that there wasn't a huge wealth gap, which I found really interesting. Based on chemical analysis, it's been found that pottery found all over Nazca territory was produced at Cahuachi, So it must have had workshops where people were producing pottery that went all over.
1: The Nazca didn't have writing. It's believed that their imagery and iconography was a type of visual communication. Motifs found on artifacts are categorized by scholars as humanoid and animal mythical beings, including the mythical killer whale, spotted cat, feline man, raid face, horrible bird, and the anthropomorphic mythical being.
2: I feel like I want to see a feline woman, and that would be ancient Jenny. <laughs> So I just love the horrible bird. I looked up some of these and it was a little bit hard to tell what they were sometimes. Like the imagery could be esoteric, I guess if you don't spend a lot of time looking at it, but still really stylized and interesting.
1: Yeah. The anthropomorphic mythical being is a really cool one. It's kind of a humanoid figure wearing a mask over its mouth, sometimes sticking out its tongue. In fact, that weird sort of millipede figure discovered amongst the Nazca lines with its tongue sticking out, looks like kind of an anthropomorphic mythical being.
2: Yeah, it's kind of like if I got drunk and tried to make an anthropomorphic mythical being in the sand. Like, that's about what it would look like. <laughs> and to be clear, no one else is saying that that's what that glyph is supposed to be. That It just looks like it to me. Like, to me, it looks like basically anything but what people tell me it's supposed to be, which is several people <laughs> in a group. But what the hell do I know? I'm not a historian. <laughs> Another motif that we see appearing again and again in Nazca pottery and textiles is severed heads everywhere. You can see the horrible bird. I love it that there's, a, there's an animal called the horrible bird. I don't know what makes this bird so horrible. Wait, actually, yes, I do. This is why. You can see the horrible bird and other figures eating severed heads on pottery and in textiles. The anthropomorphic mythical being is frequently carrying a severed head or with severed heads attached to its belt or cape. They're even in the Nazca lines. In 2011, researchers also found what they described as a scene of decapitation. Although I could not find pictures of this. Where is there the Nazca line that shows a scene of decapitation? I must see this because I've done a Google image search. I have not. No one's taken a picture of this that I can tell. By the time this comes out, that might not be true anymore. I don't know. But oh my gosh, you guys. Severed heads do appear to be related to the religion of a lot of ancient cultures, certainly not just the Nazca. Like, the first time I encountered it was when I was looking into the Celts and the Gauls. Anyway, at the Chao Cemetery and other Nazca cemeteries, caches of severed heads have been found buried with some of the mummified bodies. Interestingly, some headless bodies were found buried as well with head jars. Painted ceramic vessels with a head painted on there and trees and other plants sprouting from said head. So, one theory is that the people found with head jars were people who were decapitated in some kind of context, like maybe a religious ceremony. We don't know exactly.
1: The severed heads were usually prepared in a similar way. The base of the skull would be broken, a hole punched through the forehead, through which you could run a cord or rope, sometimes made of braided human hair. This was believed to be for display purposes. The tongue was also commonly removed and kept in a separate pouch.
2: And this totally reminds me of, like, the Gauls who had severed heads hanging from their, they hung them in the rafters of their houses and then took them down and told their stories with much pride and joy to visitors, whoever came to visit. I mean, Cahokia, the the guy with the the nipples, the severed head nipples. One of the sons of Redhorn had severed heads for nipples. Who says severed heads aren't fun? The person who lost their head. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that person, yeah. I mean, (laughs) realistically. So
1: more than a hundred severed heads have been discovered in Nazca sites and burials. Some of them were mummified with lots of soft tissue preserved. On those specimens, the mouth was usually pinned closed with thorns or pins running through the lips. When these were first discovered, archaeologists referred to these as trophy heads, and it was believed that they were trophies taken in war. The severed heads often appeared in the context of images and depictions of warfare on the pottery.
2: However, more recent analysis suggests that the people whose heads these were came from the same area as the people taking the heads. So these were locals, leading to the more modern theory that these were local human sacrifices from within the community. Chemical analysis of the hair of 22 individuals in Nazca Graves, four of which were trophy heads, have yielded some interesting results. The heads were two adult men, one adult woman, and one child, sex unknown. The woman was found to have chewed coca leaves before being decapitated. The chemically active ingredient here is a very raw form of cocaine, which serves as a mild stimulant that can also suppress pain, exhaustion, hunger, and thirst, people still chew coca leaves in South America today. The
1: child was found to have high levels of mescaline in its hair, suggesting the child had, before its death, consumed a cactus with psychedelic properties that has been used in indigenous ceremonies in cultures throughout South America. The Spanish called the cactus San Pedro, after St. Peter, who holds the keys to heaven. In Quechua, the indigenous language of Peru. Its name is Huachuma. It translates to removing the head. Interestingly, neither of the male heads seem to have consumed any substances, suggesting that these may have been war captives or enemy combatants whose heads were taken in war. However, this evidence is kind of circumstantial. Maybe only women and children were medicated prior to head removal. Or maybe not everyone was, and the sex distribution here is just coincidence. This isn't exactly a large representative sample.
2: Yeah, it's, it's kind of mysterious. So there is quite a bit of debate whether the trophy heads were actual trophy heads taken in war or whether they were ceremonial human sacrifices. And this was purely for religious purposes. So decapitation wasn't the only stuff that the Nazca did with heads, by the way. <laughs> They also practiced trepanation and cranial manipulation, and I'm going to explain both of those terms. Don't worry. In Kawachi a tomb was uncovered with nine trophy heads lined up in front of it. They had braided hair and two lay on a bed of coca leaves. One, a young adult male, was exceptionally well-preserved, with eyes, eyebrows, mustache, and beard all still present in He had straight, dark hair, styled in a complicated braid. The lips were pinned shut with two long harango wood pins. A cord emerged through the center of his forehead for carrying, you know, convenient carrying purposes. His cheeks were stuffed with cotton cloth to keep the shape, and his head showed clear signs of frontal occipital cranial deformation.
1: Frontal occipital cranial deformation. (laughs) just wanted to say it. This form of body modification was not limited to the Nazca. It also has been practiced in many other ancient and some more recent cultures throughout the world. Generally, what you do is artificially bind or press the child's skull during infancy.
2: We're going to explain to you how to elongate the head of your child.
1: We actually do this uh, a lot of times on children who are born in modern times because when a child is little, their, their skull is still pliable and sometimes it's not always in the right shape and we have to manipulate it.
2: Cranial manipulation. Get excited.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Generally, what you do is artificially bind or press the child's skull during infancy, when the skull is most pliable. You start in infancy and keep it going for about six months. The effect is different depending on how you do the head binding. Binding between two pieces of wood would produce a flattened shape. Bonding with cloth would produce a rounded or conical shape. The Nazga had a rounded, elongated shape probably produced through binding with cloth. It's thought this was a mark of status. The skulls look otherworldly and strange to us today. In fact, the crystal skulls in Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull were modeled after Nazca skulls with this modification, but they went down the ancient aliens route.
2: Yeah, and people do a lot, you know, like there's a lot of pseudo-historical attention paid to these skulls. However, these skulls are perfectly human. They're just modified. And it's really, you can do this with very simple tools. And people have been doing it throughout many different cultures throughout the ancient world and as well in the modern world. But wait, we're not done with heads. (laughs) So that's cranial manipulation. But the Nazca also practiced trepanation. This is a practice where a hole is drilled into the skull, generally while the person is still alive. While this may have been done for ritual purposes, it was also a form of early brain surgery that may have been done to relieve seizures, chronic headaches, mental illness, and swelling in the brain due to head injuries.
1: Trepanation was not just limited to the Nazca. It was widely practiced among indigenous people throughout Peru.
2: And I would say that, like, other places in the world as well, including other places in South America... Oh, yeah.
1: So many other places did it.
2: It's not just in Peru that this was done, although people in Peru were really specifically good at it.
1: In fact, studies have found that you were more than twice as likely to survive if you were trepanned by an ancient Nazca neurosurgeon than if the job was done by a surgeon in the American Civil War, because they also did trepanning in the U.S. Civil War.
2: Like, people did this surprisingly recently.
1: Yeah, I mean... Do they still do trepanning? Maybe. I mean, it seems like something that you might have to do to relieve something like pressure or something on the brain.
2: Yeah, I haven't done a deep dive of the modern medical applications of trepanning, but possibly. I don't
1: know. So the survival rate was roughly 80% among some NASCA communities. And only about 50% <laughs> at American Civil War hospitals, which is kind of an unfair comparison in some ways because you're also talking about war hospitals versus
2: look all I'm all I'm saying is that if you have to choose between being trepanned by a Nazca neurosurgeon and a U.S. Civil War neurosurgeon. Go with the Nazca one. I mean, always. Every time. <laughs> always. And like, that's one of those clear-cut health decisions that you don't have to question. <laughs>
1: no, no, not at all. I'm just also
2: saying, like, what was it like
1: on the Nazca battlefront lines during this kind of stuff? <laughs>
2: well, I don't think this is, this is excluding
1: that, Jen, you know? <laughs> yes, but we are only looking at the surgery being done during war hospitals, which is... In the U.S. during a real dark, gross time,
2: like particularly bloody and intense and unsanitary time. (laughs) Well, yeah, there's a lot of different reasons why you could compare those two times and why there'd be more of a reason you would die having this done to you in the U.S. Civil War. And I haven't done a huge deep dive into Civil War medicine, but I actually kind of want to now. I'm just too interested in history and gory history specifically.
1: I mean, our listeners are here for it. (laughs) So... How did the Nazca end? What happened to them?
2: Yeah, and why did they stop making their lines? And what does this have to do with the meaning of the lines? So many questions packed into this giant section.
1: Yeah. The Paracas culture, ancestors of the Nazca, lived on the high desert plains from roughly 1200 BC to around 100 BC. They also practiced trepanation. Decapitated heads figure prominently in their art and iconography. They, too, drew enormous petroglyphs on the high desert plain between the Ica and Nazca river valleys, and they, too, buried their dead in mummy bundles wrapped in incredibly beautiful and elaborately woven cloth. Paracas weaving is some of the most advanced of any ancient culture in the world. Some of it's also very metal. There's some in the British Museum with images of shamans flying and holding severed heads by their hair. And if I can find that image anywhere, I'm getting it made into a blanket for Jenny.
2: Amazing. (laughs) No, Paracas weaving is absolutely incredible. And there's a whole deep dive that I didn't do about how most of the textiles that we have from the Paracas culture is from their grave goods because they would wrap mummies in these incredible, just absolutely extraordinary textiles. But then a lot of those graves were looted. so And these are like thousands of years old, right? There have been a lot of them that have been stolen, essentially, and had to be retrieved or recovered Sounds an awful lot like
1: some of the darker um, areas of the antiquities trade today. Yeah. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name
2: is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything
0: yet.
1: Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast, everywhere where you find your podcasts.
0: Hello, listeners. This is Ann Bogle, author, blogger, and creator of the podcast, What Should I Read Next? Since 2016, I've been helping readers bring more joy and delight into their reading lives. Every week I check all things books and reading with a guest and guide them in discovering their next read. They share three books they love, one book they don't, and what they've been reading lately. And I recommend three titles they may enjoy reading next. Guests have said our conversations are like therapy, troubleshooting issues that have plagued their reading lives for years and possibly the rest of their lives as well. And of course, recommending books that meet the moment, whether they are looking for deep introspection to spur or encourage a life change or a frothy page-turner to help them escape the stresses of work, school, everything. You'll learn something about yourself as a reader, and you'll definitely walk away confident to choose your next read with a whole list of new books and authors to try. So join us each Tuesday for What Should I Read Next? Subscribe now wherever you're listening to this podcast, and visit our website, whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com, to find out more.
2: So, genetic testing has discovered that the Nazca were direct descendants of the Paracas people. But it's believed that sometime around 150 BC, another culture called the Topara came to the area. It's not clear if they were seen as invaders, friendly new neighbors, or perhaps both at different times. But some archaeologists believe that it was the mixing of these two cultures that gave rise to the Nazca culture. So, the Paracas culture evolved into the Nazca culture. And they lived in the high valleys starting around 100 BC. But by 500 AD, they had started to decline. In just another 100 to 150 years, they seem to have disappeared entirely. Why? So one possible answer to this can be found at Cahuachi, And I saw this in a documentary on PBS called Nazca Desert Mystery, which really distilled a lot of the latest research with regard to the end of the Nazca. In that documentary, archaeologists discussed a recent excavation of one of the broad, wide plazas at Cahuachi. That plaza was covered with a deep layer of alluvial soil, soil deposited after a flood, roughly around 400 AD. In that soil, archaeologists found the corpse of a boy who had probably drowned. And it
1: wasn't the only flood. Archaeology has uncovered evidence for several consecutive flood events, followed by an earthquake that destroyed part of Kowatchee. Could all these successive natural disasters have caused the downfall of the Nazca? The Peruvian coastal desert is the driest in the world, but it's also prone to periodic heavy flooding due to El Nino weather patterns. These days, a large, extremely damaging flood occurs here once every two to seven years. In 2017, a devastating rainstorm wiped out several villages in Peru and killed 80 people. Climate change and deforestation have made the floods worse and more frequent. So the theory is that sometime between 400 and 500 AD, the Nazca experienced one extremely devastating El Nino mega-flood event, or perhaps several successive ones. Kowatchee was buried in mudslides and brought to its knees by earthquakes. And after the floods came the droughts, the aquifers dried up, the rain refused to come, the crops dried out in the fields. All of this had to have an effect on the relationship that the Nazca had with their gods.
2: And it would seem that that's true. The evidence is in the way the Nazca lines changed. Different geoglyphs and patterns appeared at different times. During the later Nazca period, people seem to have stopped making the elaborate animals and plants and started making long, thin trapezoids that sometimes took up entire plateaus. Archaeologists have found stone-built platform altars at the ends of some of these, suggesting a new type of ritual space. People left offerings on these altars, including seashells, vegetables, and plants, and semi-precious stones.
1: According to this PBS documentary, the change in the Nazca lines indicates a seismic shift in the way the Nazca conducted their rituals. New studies suggest that the long trapezoids point to mountains, specific mountains, where rainstorms would come from in the summer months. Geophysical imaging suggests that there were man-made aqueducts built under a number of these trapezoids. Some research suggests that the Nazca's themselves degraded their own environment. In 2009, there were a spate of headlines about how the Nazca created their own demise, quote unquote. But you have to be careful with headlines like this, because this is a trope, and we've talked about it a lot this season.
2: With the Nazca, yes, it does seem to be true that they may have been doing some things around this time that did hasten the effects of climate change that was already happening but this may not have been entirely their fault. This is a story of colonization. Sometime around the 500s AD, a culture called the Wari began to rise in prominence. The Wari were a highland people living in the Andes, and they were empire builders. They were kind of the precursors to the Inca. They took control of the high mountain valleys around them, invading villages, taking over agricultural centers, and installing their own storehouses. Villages that weren't taken over emptied out, and their occupants fled. And I do want to say that we are going to talk about some of the endemic violence that was around among the Wari and what they did to other people. There is archaeological evidence for this. This is one of those cultures that I don't think we're getting any of this from Spanish sources because it was quite a bit earlier than that. You do have to be careful with tropes about, you know, violent indigenous people as well. So I was really careful to look for stuff that can be traced back specifically to archaeology. But you also have to be aware that archaeology also has a lens interpreting a lot of things. So the history of all of this is very complicated. But it is also true that throughout the world, some cultures are more warlike than others. So that's not untrue for any region of the world anywhere. Oh,
1: yeah. We've seen it in all the history that we've been sharing with you, and we're going to see it everywhere.
2: Yeah. So anyway, just to get to what I uncovered here, and I share this stuff because I wanted to show you what the Nazca could have been dealing with in their own area. So studies of bones from this time period show statistically higher levels of violence visited on skeletons of people who were colonized by the Wari during this time period, as compared with people from other Andean cultures. In Wari graves, roughly 25% of women had been subject to violence, and the rate was 42% among men. 39% 39% of children under 15 showed at least one traumatic injury, although it should be noted that the level of trauma was relatively low among the elite dead.
1: One of the Wari practices was kidnapping, sacrificing, and decapitating children from conquered communities. The Nazca also took heads, but the Wari used head-taking and human sacrifice more systematically as an instrument of terror against the cultures they conquered. The Wari also had this tradition called Tinku, which was a ritualized battle during which people fought barehanded and with weapons in a kind of ritual war. The goal of Tinku was to make your opponent shed blood, which was seen as a sacrifice to the gods. And this was done by attacking with fists, maces, and rocks, usually aiming for the head. Death and grievous injuries were common, and both men and women fought.
2: So the history of Tinku is actually a little bit problematic because I've seen conflicting accounts about it. The Wari were not the only people doing this during this time. And the Wari were not the only people doing head-taking and human sacrifice. It's just that they really intensified traditions that were already there. So with Tinku, again, it was practiced not just among the Wari, but other people did this as well. And I've seen some accounts that say that the Spanish actually started it, bringing indigenous people together and forcing them to fight for their own amusement. So that's one account of how Tinku started But other accounts say that it goes back to pre-colonial times, including among the Wari. And the archaeological evidence does kind of support this version, at least among the Wari. In one study of skeletons across several different Wari towns, almost every adult skeleton had experienced at least one serious head wound. And that's kind of like a thing in Tinku where you're supposed to attack the head. These wounds could have been gotten in other ways as well. But the fact that there are so many prevalent head wounds kind of backs it up a little bit, at least. I mean, tough to know, right? Yeah, there's so much here that's up for interpretation.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it's not the first time we've seen this kind of ritualized battle. We see it all the way back in places like the Iliad, right, in Western culture. We see it with gladiators. I could absolutely believe the Spanish brought it over. I could also believe it's much older.
2: Or that maybe the Spanish did something with an existing tradition.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me in any way, shape, or form.
2: Right, like they could both be true, these two accounts.
1: Yeah. So according to some accounts, the Wari intensified the level of violence, tinku, decapitation and ritual head-taking, and other forms of violence, and used it against conquered people as a method of terrorization. Sounds, sounds very much like a certain empire we spent a lot of time in last season and the season before. Are we
2: talking about ancient Rome? Because you're not wrong. I mean, there were a lot of if you go up to Hadrian's Wall, there were like severed heads outside the gates of forts and things. And they were from indigenous communities like they they were absolutely using this this type of stuff as. A method of terror against indigenous communities that they were trying to conquer.
1: Yeah. I mean, the subjugation of Britain alone was, was that, and just Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars. Like, it's all the same when you see, like, a people going from one stage into empire building, right? I bet we'll see it in other areas of the world when we get to other areas of the world. But, like, when you start going into that empire building, it gets real, 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 real dark and scary.
2: Yeah, and I certainly don't want to say that like everything is the same as Greece and Rome and Britain, you know, because there is obviously a lot of differences. But I do want to say that like, we're not singling these people out as being uniquely violent among the cultures that we study because they're not.
1: Yeah, I guess that's more what I was trying to say. Like they're not similar cultures in any way, shape or form. But the level of violence that you see is not any different than what you saw in empire building in the West. So according to Jacqueline Elaine Meager author of Violence and Trauma in the Wari Heartland, quote, It seems to have been impossible to age without experiencing at least one injury. Most people didn't live past 50, but those who did showed increased rates of trepanation, suggesting that their head wounds had caused them trouble that had to be alleviated through cranial surgery. According to Meager again, quote, these symptoms include nausea, vomiting, headache, and seizure-like activity. They can also turn into life-threatening symptoms such as tissue hemorrhage, bilateral hemispherical damage, and hematoma. Trepanations release the cranial pressure in the cranium and help the brain to stop swelling.
2: So that's a general picture of what it was like to live among the worry. I mean, on the negative side, if you weren't decapitated in childhood… You would get a terrible head injury and probably need to be trepanned later in life. But luckily... They were very good at it! (laughs) They were super great at this, okay? (laughs) There was a very high survival rate among trepanation surgeries. There was one community I read about where the survival rate was something like 91%, and I can't say that it was the worry, but it might have been. One skull was found with seven trepanation holes. Seven! And that person had lived... I mean, that is super impressive. They were good at brain surgery. The Wari also had great textiles. And they were, interestingly, the Wari were the first, as far as I know, to use the Kipu, which were, I don't know if you've ever seen these, Jen. They're elaborate records of knots in string that were used to keep track of taxes and tribute. This was basically a writing system that the Inca were known for, but they got it from the Wari. And that's a cool thing. I might do a deep dive on the Kipu at some point. So anyway. The Wari dominated their highland neighbors, gave everyone horrible chronic headaches, made great textiles, and then turned their attention toward the lowlands, specifically to the lowland deserts. According to one theory, they coveted the lands of the Nazca because their homeland, with its carefully irrigated fields, was the perfect place to grow cotton.
1: The Wari couldn't grow cotton in the highlands. The conditions weren't right. But they needed cotton to produce their fabulous textiles. And down in the foothills, the Nazca lived in a place that was perfect for it. Studies suggest that the plateau where the Nazca lived was not always a barren, arid desert. Pollen samples in desert cores suggest that once, the area was home to a vast woodland of harango trees, incredible, slow-growing trees that produce edible seed pods that taste like nougat. Harango trees are long-lived and slow-growing, and have the effect of anchoring soil to reduce the severity of floods. Their seeds are also a great supplemental food source.
2: Today, there's only a remnant left of an ancient Nazca forest, the Usaka Forest, sunk into the desert in a narrow valley six miles long and only a few dozen feet wide. Studies show that this forest is an ancient relic, the remains of a much larger one that covered maybe as much as 97% more area, and that forest is currently under threat due to illegal logging. According to those pollen studies, around the time the Wari came down from the mountains, the forests started to disappear, and they were replaced with cotton plants. This is where all these headlines came from, by the way, about how the Nazca created their own demise by cutting down their slow-growing old-growth trees to plant cotton. But archaeology shows that around this time, the Wari had come to this area, and a newer theory suggests that the Wari pushed or coerced the Nazca into cutting down their woodlands to grow cotton, taxing their environment in ways they never had before. The trees retained water from the mist that rose up from the sea. They provided habitat for animals that could be hunted, and they also provided their seed pods, a rich source of nutrition for the Nazca. With all that gone, the land was drier, not as fertile, and much more subject to floods.
1: I don't know. I'm not sure I would want to take the warrior. I'm like, they're like, cut your trees down and we're not going to we're not gonna sever your heads. I might be like, okay, the trees can go. <laughs>
2: it's okay. You can t- find have the trees. Yeah. Can we keep half and you keep half? No. No. All right. Fine. No. That's forget we said it.
1: I mean, yeah. It's a it's a real lose lose for the NASCAR, right?
2: That's the picture I'm painting here.
1: Yeah, and I think I think it's really important when you read those headlines that you you look at the other factors that were also happening because. Those articles are all clickbaity. They want your eyes on it and they want a talking point, but they don't always give you the complexity around it.
2: And they might not know, like they might not have that whole picture. You know, it takes time for this stuff to emerge.
1: Absolutely. And something that emerged two years ago, now you might have something totally different, you know, two years later, because that's how fast things move. So what makes the great El Nino floods of this region so deadly isn't necessarily the sheer volume of water, although that's also a factor. It's the fact that the rain is falling on so much sand not stabilized by any trees or plants. This creates devastating mudslides that can bury whole towns, as happened several times at Cuachi. Nazca culture was not free from violence before the floods or droughts or the warrior depictions of war scenes and decapitations appear on its pottery stretching back to the Paracas culture before it. But during the latest periods of its history, after five hundred a.d., Depictions of violence in Nazca art increased greatly.
2: According to David Pruel in a paper titled Nazca Headhunting and the Ritual Use of Trophy Heads, quote, In the later Nazca phases, 5 through 7, there is a major increase in depictions of warriors associated with trophy heads, battle scenes, and heads being held by elaborately dressed secular leaders. Brown, Silverman, and Garcia have suggested that, quote within the quote, In contrast to early Nazca times, when only supernaturals and ritualists are shown in association with trophy heads, late Nazca iconography suggests the prestige of the leaders of late Nazca society was enhanced by successful headhunting. It seems pretty clear that violence intensified in Nazca society sometime after 500 AD. Was this internal conflict due to diminishing resources? Or was the violence being visited on them by the Wari? Or maybe it
1: was both. Yeah. I mean, again, when we see the fall of Teotihuacan, one of the theories was there was outside people and inside unrest. And then when you get that together, no matter how strong your society is, like, the cracks are going to really show. Yeah. So. Were the Wari visiting an increased level of violence on the Nazca? Is that what their pottery is depicting during this time? It's one interpretation you could have.
2: Yeah, so the Nazca were facing, quite possibly, colonization from a stronger, more warlike culture. And they were also facing climate change. Really extreme climate change. And there's one more angle to look at this from, because one thing Jen is absolutely going to ask, and she did ask me this as I was doing this episode, and that question is, did a volcano do it?
1: (laughs) Do you know why? Because I just did all the stuff in Teotihuacan, which is in the same area. And I was like, there were so many volcanoes going off at this time.
2: Was there anything going on that might have overlapped? <laughs> it's not the same area at all, but like on the same side of the planet, I guess.
1: OK, in the same side of the world. But also, as I have told you many times, when a volcano goes off, it's not about the lava or the pyroclastic flow, although those are very, very important. It's about the lasting impacts on the climate and the air that can change everything.
2: So, Jen, what would you consider just off the top of your head to be the worst year in recorded human history?
1: Are we talking about 2020?
2: <laughs> I mean, going to be one of us who's going to bring up 2020. I mean... <laughs> I mean
1: are we talking about, about the year of the Spanish and the Valenza? Are we talking uh, the year without summer, the Black Death? We... All of those, you know? like There's so many. Uh, the eruption of Thera... Yellow Sand Supervolcano that happened
2: in the past and will happen in the future. So according to some historians, the worst year in recorded human history was 536 AD. They really went to a lot of effort to quantify this. Obviously, this is subjective. But according to the science and ancient records, a bunch of weird stuff was happening during this time. The sun disappeared. The seasons went all jumbled. Crops failed. And this happened on a global scale. It would seem that the whole world was plunged into volcanic winter.
1: Volcanic winter! See, this is what I'm telling you. Doesn't matter where it goes off. If, the, if it's bad enough, it's going to impact everywhere. Sorry, I sound like such a fangirl, but I'm really not. I'm terrified.
2: I know. I know. Same. You know, you asked me this question when I was doing this. You were like, oh, I wonder if the same volcano that caused the downfall of Teotihuacan had anything to do with the Nazca Lines in Peru and all that climate change. And I was like, oh, let me look into that. And then I really uncovered a rabbit hole. And I'm just going to give you a little bit of this just to give you the general sense because this deserves its own episode, which we will probably get to at some point.
1: Yeah, because I want to do a whole season about natural disasters in the ancient
2: world and
1: particularly there'll be volcanoes anyway. One thing that happened was spooky changes to the sun. Yeah, this always happens. In 536 AD, Procopius, a Roman historian, described how the sun quote, gave forth its light without brightness, and it seemed exceedingly like the sun in eclipse, for the beams it shed were not clear. End quote. That's super common in a volcanic winter. Two years later, the Roman chronicler Cassiodorus described a weak sun that shone a bluish color giving off little, if any, heat. At noon, no one's shadow could be seen on the ground. The seasons seemed all jumbled up together. Frost covered the ground during harvest time, and the wine went bad. The people suffered from widespread famine, and then the plague of Justinian started. hmm hmm <laughs> sorry i'm such a fangirl about this stuff but it, none of it surprises me the only thing i'm waiting for is the sun is the sunsets we saw them i think it's during the Tambora eruption like the picture the very famous picture as edward Munch's the scream the sunset in the background is is it's all based on the year without summer and the kind of wild sunsets they had where the colors were just out of just out of control and really different than what they usually had these vivid intense sunsets so anyway, back to, back to 536. In China, snow fell during the summer. Crops failed everywhere and a thick, fine dust fell throughout the land. People were scooping it up in handfuls. In Ireland, crops failed over a period of years. Their annals called it, quote, a failure of bread. A dense, dry fog swept the Middle East and Europe.
2: This extreme weather event had catastrophic effects around the globe. A cooling period known as the Late Antique Little Ice Age kicked off from here, lasting until the 7th century, so it lasted hundreds of years. During which time, the global temperature dropped about 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit, and it caused plague, drought, widespread famine, and suffering around the world. It also caused a lot of social upheaval. Some credit this event with the downfall of Rome, the collapse of the Sassanid Empire, and the fall of Teotihuacan. Because the Americas were affected too. The great city of Teotihuacan was burned and sacked and its rich devoured around this time. In Peru, the downfall of the Moche people is documented around this time as well. They suffered intense flash floods and mudslides, followed by 30 years of drought. They were the Nazca's neighbors.
1: The volcanic eruption that did this, that it made this happen, is a little hard to pinpoint. We've seen some scientists say that it could have been multiple volcanoes erupting in quick succession. One of the culprits is believed to be Ilopongo, a volcano in El Salvador that erupted several times, possibly in the 400s and 500s AD. It's the same volcano that may have caused the collapse of Teotihuacan.
2: We talked about it in that episode.
1: We did. And there was there was a few... At this point in time, there's sort of like a chain of volcanoes around there that kind of were just popping off all the time. So they don't exactly know which one did it. It could have been any of the ones in there, but one of them essentially really went off.
2: And there is a theory that there might have been a volcano in Iceland that went off around this time, too. like Double trouble. Yeah, that's what the volcano is called.
1: (laughs) It was the the famous Icelandic name of double trouble. That's right. <laughs> I'm sorry, Iceland. Anyway, and like one of the theories I saw was like there could have also been an earthquake, and then it had like a volcanic seam that opened up. But we don't exactly know. So it's important to remember that, like everyone else in the world, the Nazca were facing extreme weather events, extensive drought, and seasons that seemed to have gone absolutely wild. They were also quite possibly dealing with a colonizing culture that was inflicting violence on them at an unprecedented level, forcing them to cut down their trees, which exacerbated the effects of climate change. And also probably that culture was now fighting for resources that they saw someone else as having and needed to
2: take. Right, a lot of these things could have all worked in tandem.
1: All of this would have made the situation of the Nazca exponentially worse. It's especially important to remember this in the face of headlines that accuse them of degrading their own environment.
2: Perhaps the chain of events went something like this. And I'm just going to pull together all the threads here. This is not 100% absolutely the sequence of events in terms of how it happened. It's just one way you can pull it together because it's hard to tell the order of, of things.
1: Yeah, and also that assumes there is an order. Like different events on top of other events don't always have the same causal reaction the way we can pinpoint it to today.
2: Yeah, but one way you could interpret it is this. One or more volcanic eruptions changed the climate, turned things colder and drier, maybe made the sun disappear in a terrifying event that lasted for months. Floods came, wiped out whole cities, and buried their sacred sites in mud. Then came decades and decades of drought. Crops failed. The people performed their rituals and dances on the high plateaus, but the gods did not send rain. Around that time, a new people, invaders, swept down from the high mountains and visited a level of violence on the Nazca people that was unprecedented. They were forced to cut down their forests and grow cotton for the empire.
1: Losing the forest was devastating. The people continued to pray and the gods stayed silent for year upon year upon year, Finally, the people tried something new. They built new geoglyphs, great paths for the rain to follow, trying to pull the rainstorms down from the mountains. They danced and prayed and sacrificed, and still the gods did not answer. Finally, the people lost faith in their gods. Archaeologists have found at the last layers of use at Kawachi, Layers of potsherds, hundreds of pots deliberately broken, perhaps in a ritual repudiation of the gods. The people then deliberately buried what was left of Kawachi, and abandoned the site and eventually the high plateau.
2: Studies show that towards 650 or 700 AD, the heartland of the Nazca emptied out. They went east, into the mountains where the rain still fell. They went south and integrated with the communities there. Some integrated with the Wari and survived however they could. Archaeologists today don't think the Nazca Lines had just one purpose. They believed they had many throughout the centuries. They served as signposts and guides to travelers, perhaps markers of territory. They functioned as sacred pathways on which people performed ritual dances. And at the end, perhaps they represented a last, desperate attempt to call down rain from the mountains. But the rain didn't come,
1: and so they broke their pottery. They buried their sacred sites. They repudiated their gods. And then somehow, even though their old way of life was lost, they continued to live making a new life wherever they could.
2: That's it for this week. (laughs) And this season. (laughs) We just can't, we can't keep it light. It's real hard.
1: It's bound to end this way when you're looking at ancient mysteries. But it's been such a beautiful season.
2: Well, I mean, I think history is sad. That's what I've learned in the four years of this podcast. So...
1: That's it for this week. And maybe this season, although we will be back next week with uh, some news, you can find us on social. We're still on Twitter for the moment, at Ancient Hist Fan, and we're on Facebook and Instagram. We're quite active on Instagram, at Ancient History Fangirl,
2: And we have some patrons to thank. The Patreon is the reason that we still are doing this podcast after four years.
1: Can I say this? I'm going to do a dad joke. I'm sorry. The Patreon is the reason for this season. Ah, see what I did there? We wouldn't have a season or a podcast at all without our Patreon.
2: I, isn't the reason for the season some kind of like Christian microaggression?
1: Yeah, it's Jesus. But, but honestly, for us, the reason for the season is our patrons.
2: That's true. That's true. You guys are Jesus. <laughs> anyway so before we make this even more awkward you can become a patreon member by visiting patreon.com slash ancient history fangirl i think we just sold it real real well we did <laughs> so we have some patrons to thank apologies to anyone whose name we mispronounced. so thank you so much to marcy Arsenault, tiffany
1: sanchez slate
2: and sam Teja. i'm so sorry if i mispronounced that Thank you guys so much. Happy holidays, and we will see you next week.